Good morning and welcome to this episode of the podcast series Navigating Uncertainty. Navigating Uncertainty is a podcast series hosted by the School of Humanities and Social Sciences in the University of New South Wales, Canberra. I'm David Lee. I'm part of the history discipline in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. And I'm being joined by Professor David Lowe, who's Professor of Contemporary History at Deakin University. Professor David Lowe is the author of many books, including a biography of Percy Spender, who was one of the architects of the ANZUS Treaty. And he, we will be talking today about the ANZUS Treaty after its 70th anniversary, which comes up in September of this year. Welcome, David. G'day, David. Pleased to be here. So in the lead up to the 70th anniversary of the signing of the ANZUS Treaty, we're going to be talking about the ANZ Australia and the ANZUS Treaty in retrospect. And before we um, get going on the, on the podcast, I should just apologise in advance if the sound quality is not um, perfect because this podcast is being done from our homes in Canberra and Geelong, respectively, given that the ACT is in lockdown at this moment. Um, so without further ado, perhaps we can start the look at Australia and the ANZUS Treaty by looking at the 10 years or so before 1951 and the state of the Australia-US relationship. What was the state of the relationship in that decade before the ANZUS Treaty? Um, I think it was um, fairly mixed, David, in the sense that we need to recall there's one very famous moment that comes 10 years before the treaty, and that is Prime Minister John Curtin's famous newspaper article in which he looked to America free of any pangs or inhibitions as to Australia's traditional ties with Britain. And that was, you know, in Australia's darkest hour as the Japanese were advancing spectacularly throughout Southeast Asia. And so for many observers and historians, that was quite a signal moment and marked a sudden shift in their view of Australia's orientation in world affairs, perhaps away from Britain towards the United States. In fact, it doesn't seem to be that simple. I think um, most good research has proven that there was no sudden shift, there was no sudden turn away from the UK. Um, we know that you know World War II saw roughly one million Americans pass through Australia as a means of defending the Japanese and regaining territory in the South Pacific. Um, but although that experience is often remembered fairly warmly, and certainly by the Americans, I think fairly warmly, Relations at the end of the war seemed to be uh, a bit less stable, with the Americans um, having some arguments at times with the Australians about the potential for bases uh, near New Guinea. Manus Island in particular was a source of some uh, concern and, and disagreement as to whether it might be a US naval base. In the event, it wasn't. Um, negotiations proved tough and Dr. Evett proved um, fairly unwilling to, you know, talk in the same terms that the Americans wanted. So you've got the, the second half of the 1940s seems to be, uh, you know, one in which it's hard to 
predict the nature of the relationship would be, I guess, one way I'd put it, because the, it was also a period in which we saw rising levels of Australian, perhaps concerns too strong a word, but some, some anxiety around American intentions for the post-war economic order, which didn't accord with Labor's views of the world as well. But, but that's, a, that's a very short summary. Good. So we, we get to the end of the 1940s and uh, Curtin's successor, Chifley, who you mentioned, he loses the election in 1949 and he's replaced by a Liberal Country Party coalition. It's led by Robert Menzies. Menzies had been Prime Minister um, in the first couple of years of the Second World War and it has another key uh, minister in that government called Percy Spender about whom you've written a biography. Perhaps you could sketch the background of these two men, Robert Menzies and Percy Spender. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting set of commonalities and also divergences because they both had legal training, but in very different cultures, Menzies in Melbourne, Spender in Sydney. Let me expand a little bit on Spender first. He um he makes his way into Australian politics as an independent initially, and perhaps that's appropriate given that he was quite an independent thinker. In 1937, he enters the federal parliament and then quickly joins the United Australia Party soon after. But um, as an independent thinker, Spender seemed to invest a lot of energies in reading world affairs and concluding that we were living in very changeable times in the late 1930s. Watching the mounting tensions that led to the Second World War, he really concluded that the um, power of Europe was in danger of waning and that especially in, the, especially in the Pacific and in relation to the geopolitics of Asia, the United States was well-placed to take a, a more vigorous role in world affairs and that Australia's future um, should logically be um, more closely linked to the, the future of the United States. So he's quite outspoken in these terms and quite outspoken about the inadequacies of Australia's defence preparations and the so-called Singapore strategy, wherein Australia invested a lot of hopes in the British fortress of Singapore. If we turn to Menzies very briefly, he seems to, unlike Spender, have the British Empire at the very centre of his thinking about what all that was good in world affairs. He very much um, thought about the world in relation to a British Empire-centred vision of where Australia's best interests lay and where the future lay also in terms of what might happen, including changes such as the possible you know, process of decolonisation anything that would happen in terms of defending against fascism or orderly control of empires would best be administered by the British. They would provide the lead in Menzies' view. And so his attitude towards the Americans was very different from that of Spender's. So what was it about Spender that made him particularly determined to go ahead with um, trying to construct a, a, a new security relationship with the US when when Menzies wasn't so, so keen? Yeah, it's a combination of things, I think, David. I think Spender, you know, really saw potential for Australia 
coming out of the Second World War to transform itself, um, both economically as well as its role in its region. And that could only be done if it threw off some shackles, and the shackles were the sort of lines of economic dependence that it had formed with Britain, which Spender knew was in a rather exhausted state at the end of the Second World War. And so to throw off those shackles and to be more than a hewer of wood and a carrier of water was the, the phrase he used, um, it was much better for Australians to think about the dynamism of the American economy and this tremendous growth that it had enjoyed in recent times. So there's that kind of economic uh, vision that Spender has matched to the earlier component of what I was talking about, a sense that this was to be the American century. He did read closely, and he, he, including those that famous phrase that um, Henry Luce in 1941 talked about, the American century. He did think that the second half of the 20th century was likely to feature the Americans basically in harness of the um, where, where predominant power worked in international relations. So for th those are probably a combination of reasons, plus a sense of having watched what happened at Singapore and at having seen Australian troops used in ways that he didn't think appropriate in campaigns like Greece and Crete in the Second World War. These were the, the, the combination of factors that led him to think that a closer alliance with the United States was logical. The only other factor I think we probably should throw in, David, is the, um, the fear of Japan. Um, we, we know that um, the legacy of Japan's success in the Second World War before the turning point came and, it, it, and the Americans at Battle of Midway and Coral Sea and the Australians and Americans in New Guinea managed to turn the tide. We know that, that um, mem those memories of Japan's success were, were seared into the minds of a generation of Australian politicians, both Spender and Menzies, and they really wanted some guarantee of their security that Japan or perhaps another, another nation in Asia, and they had their minds on China as well by the late 1940s, would not be able to do a similar thing again. Yeah, now we see the treaty negotiated uh, by, by, by Spender, by Spender particularly um, in 1950 and 51. How important was the Korean War in the signing of the treaty? And should we see it as a treaty won by the skill of diplomats like Spender or something which was really gifted to Australia and New Zealand by the US? Yeah, the second of your question is a hard one to answer, but I think the, the Korean War part is is easier. And that is to, to say that the, I think the context of the Korean War was quite decisive. We see spenders lobbying in the first half of 1950 going largely unrewarded. There wasn't a lot of positive response from the State Department or other Americans in favour of something called a Pacific Pact. But once we get to the mid-1950s, and especially, uh, well, there's a combination of things. There's NSC 68, that all-encompassing American Cold War document, which I think is April 1950. And then with the declaration of the Korean War in June 1950, combination of those two things mark a decisive change of atmosphere in a way that demonstrates a greater preparedness by the Americans to just lock areas of the world up in terms of um, treaties, security treaties or agreements that enabled them to you know, declare that this part of the world would be protected against communism. 
So to try and grapple a little bit with the second part of your question, I, I think, you know, the influence of Spender and colleagues arguing for something like a Pacific Pact, which, of course, is what ANZUS was called before it became the title Australia, New Zealand, US Security Treaty. Their, their skill was still significant because they had to bargain in ways that um, produced a treaty of the right kind of dimensions. But I do think, you know, to go to your question, I do think their task was made much easier and dollars. John Foster Dulles, US Secretary of State, travelled around this part of the world with an intention, with a greater preparedness, as I say, to conclude something that would work. Yeah, now, the, the text of the treaty as negotiated, Article 3 is important. It says the parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, that's Australia, New Zealand and the US, the territorial integrity, political independence or security of any of the parties is threatened in the Pacific. And then Article 4 says each party recognises that an armed attack in the Pacific area on any one of the parties would be dangerous to its own peace and safety and declares that it would act to meet the common danger in accordance with its constitutional processes. Perhaps you could talk a bit about um, those key articles um, and a comparison with the North Atlantic Treaty, which was signed a year before or a couple mm. of years before. Yes, I think in many ways, people like Spender in particular were disappointed. I know Percy Spender was disappointed that the articles of ANZUS weren't as strong as NATO's, whereas the wording and the key wording from the um, provision in NATO is an attack on one is an attack on all. So it's very definite, very unqualified. As you've just described it, those key provisions in the ANZUS Treaty obliging the parties to consult and then act in accordance with constitutional processes is certainly a much more diluted form of, um, you know, acting in concert. So there's no attack on one equals an attack on all. That left um, a fair bit of wiggle room and I guess formed the basis of the need for ongoing discussion over coming decades between the Australians and Americans around just what kind of situation, what, what scenarios would trigger the invocation of the ANZUS Treaty in ways that would, you know, bring one side to act in defence of in defence of the other. Yeah. Now, one um, absence from the treaty is Britain, Australia's traditional um, great power um, friend, been a part of the British Australia was part of the British Empire and Commonwealth. Why was Britain excluded from the treaty, and how did Australia manage that? British were excluded. Um, that, that Britain wasn't uninterested in such a treaty, but they thought that um, if something like a security treaty for this part of the world was to unfold, it should um, include them and probably India, ideally, which you know had become independent in 1947. And the British idea of um, a security treaty tried to involve this, this embrace this new idea of the modern Commonwealth, the post-war Commonwealth. Um, but the the British idea of the treaty um, also involved a um, a sense of um, possible complications that the Australians were keen to avoid. 
Um, and, and that was, you know, the British um, held out for possible extensions of membership, as I mentioned, to India and, and possibly other South Asian dominions. But it also um, held out this potential to dilute in ways that might replicate the scenario that had prevailed in the Second World War. In other words, the Australians didn't want to risk another kind of beat Hitler first strategy, whereby the British and the Americans would agree what was important in a global war situation. And between the two of them would kind of agree that you know, Australia's interests could again be marginalised. The Australians were quite keen to avoid that dynamic. The the memories of the so-called beat Hitler first policy, which put the Pacific on the back burner in World War II, was another important factor in how the Australians wanted to see the new security regime. So they're very keen to proceed in ways that you know the British couldn't dilute or delay. Yes, so we see the treaty signed you know, 70 years ago um, in 1951 and coming into effect in 1952. And then we see in the 1950s a series of of crises. You have a, in 1954 the Indochina crisis where the US was contemplating intervening on behalf of the French and, and consulted with its allies like Britain and Australia about that. We see a, a crisis in the Taiwan Strait between China and uh, the nationalists on, on Taiwan. And we see other regional uh, disputes or dis disagreements between uh, Australia and Indonesia in the 1950s and early 1960s. So what part does ANZUS play in this? What does Australia want from the treaty? And what and how does um, how do the Americans interpret the treaty in this, say, 10 years or so after 1951? Yeah, it's a really good question. And Percy Spender is very invested in wrestling with lots of these questions because he was Australia's ambassador in Washington from 1951 to 1958. He described his task in Washington as trying to put flesh on the bones of ANZUS. That was the phrase he used. And by that, he meant that he really wanted to see, you know, a greater degree of ongoing consultation, um, perhaps the sharing of more secrets, the sharing of more materials related to war preparations and so on. He was trying to hope that ANZUS might start to resemble in robustness um, the kind of things that NATO was doing in, in, in relation to Northern Europe. Those crises that you mentioned, those su succession of crises, at times Spender hoped might trigger this kind of flesh being put on the bones, especially in relation to the Indochina crisis of 1954. He, he sort of argued to Canberra that the Australians should, if pressed, agree to support American intervention on behalf of the French in Vietnam. Uh, at that time, the cabinet, Australian cabinet decided not to. They thought it would be the wrong call and they were encouraged in that thinking by the British. And so that was one moment that Spender bemoaned as a, as a moment where you might have actually tied yourself to the Americans in ways that made them think a little more broadly about sharing more and talking more about their planning. So he was a little bit frustrated that whilst these crises um, triggered Australian thinking, including the Taiwan Strait crises that you mentioned, the offshore island crises, and, and other events that allow at the end of the 1950s, they, they triggered Australian sharp, um, concentrated thinking on you know, what ANZUS meant and how Australian might need to respond. 
But it also, in, in each case, there was a great degree of caution by the Australian Cabinet so that they were very keen to preserve the alliance but wary of involvement on the Asian mainland in ways that might be seen as perhaps a little over-adventurous by the Americans. And, um, and so we have this, this interesting tension between wanting to preserve the alliance at all costs and, and putting flesh on bones, but also being a little bit tentative um, at times in you know, what, what is perceived to be a growing tendency towards um, adventurism in American thinking about responding to communism in Asia. That tension grows even more in the 60s, I guess, when you've got the Australian mounting concerns about Indonesia and the growth of the Communist Party in Indonesia in the early 60s, and starting to think about scenarios in which, under what circumstances would the Americans come to our rescue, would, would, would ANZUS be triggered if um, Indonesia suddenly became communist, um, if they crossed the border into the Australian-controlled part of New Guinea and so on? Yeah, so for, in, in the 60s, we have um, developments in the Australia-US relationships, such as the uh, welcoming of US bases, beginning with Northwest Cape in 1963. We have Australia being a participant in, in another collective security agreement, the CETA or Southeast Asia Treaty um, Alliance. And we have in 1965, um, Australia committing ground troops to Vietnam. Did what relationship did did these developments have to ANZUS in your view? It's it's sort of a mostly indirect, I think, David. That there, there's this notion of the alliance, and then there's ANZUS, and the two, I think, aren't quite the same in the Australians' minds. So. The Australians of the Menzies era, talking up to the mid-1960s in particular and the involvement of troops in Vietnam, talk about the American alliance in ways that go beyond the terms of the Treaty of ANZUS. And, you know, some, some politicians, um, Robert Menzies talks about great and powerful friends. Um, his successor, Harold Holt, talks about a, an insurance policy when he refers to ANZUS. It's as though the alliance um, is predicated on enabling a kind of relationship with the Americans that just builds to a point where there's a degree of confidence about their coming to Australia's assistance if need be. And that kind of works at two levels. It works at the level of occasional probing of, you know, the what ifs. The situation that I mentioned would ANZUS be triggered if this happened, but in another way, there's a more general relationship with the Americans that they try to preserve too, and that is, you know, perhaps one of the greatest sources of um, satisfaction that the Australians have about America's involvement in Vietnam, which, as we know, by the mid 1960s is very formidable, is knowing that there's this tremendous body of American armed forces on the Asian mainland somewhere. Um, that it happens to be in Vietnam is significant, but somewhere is important as well because it signals a, uh, a preparedness to you know, attend, be close by, intervene should the need arise in Australia's interest as well. And as I was suggesting, up until 
65, late 65, early 66, it was probably Indonesia that was often in the Australian uh, minds in terms of where potential threats might come from, watching the growth of the PKI, the, the Communist Party of Indonesia, and to some extent China as well, watching the growth of um, the Chinese armed forces, China's acquisition of, a, of an atomic bomb, and, and, and wondering lots of questions around China's intentions. Now, after the American withdrawal from uh, Vietnam in the 70s, we have um, in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, we have a degree of nervousness in Australia about nuclear issues, about possibility of uh, Australia being subject to a nuclear attack as part of the global alliance. We have the growth of anti-uranium movements in Australia and in New Zealand as well. In 1983, the Hawke Labor government is elected and a year later in New Zealand, a Labor government is elected there too under a guy called David Longy. Now, the New Zealand Labor government um, has a policy that they will not allow US nuclear capable ships into their ports. And when they stop the entry of a, a US vessel that might have been nuclear powered or armed, that precipitates a crisis in the ANZUS arrangements in 1985. And you have Australia facing the prospect that the whole arrangement is going to fall down and Australia might even have to negotiate a new treaty. In the end, what happens is that New Zealand, the, the relationship of the treaty to New Zealand is suspended. So it no longer applies to um, New Zealand, but it does apply to Australia. Why did the paths of Australia and New Zealand, in your view, diverge in this period of the 1980s? Mm, no, it's a really good question. And um, it, it perhaps goes to the kind of combination of things that you mentioned in terms of uranium. Of course, Australia was um, invested in, in, in some uranium um, uh, mining. So there's a, there's a resources dimension to Australia's nuclear kind of thinking. But also the relationship between Bob Hawke and the American government seems so very different to that of the New Zealanders with the American government. We know that Hawke struck up a very strong relationship with George Shultz, Secretary of State and the Reagan government, and that that perhaps, you know, was quite decisive in smoothing over some of the tensions that were arising. It's it's probably too you know, strong a thing to say that the Australians departed completely from the New Zealanders in the sense that we were also quite invested in the idea of, you know, South Pacific nuclear free zones as well and, and promoting that idea and, and to some extent the Indian Ocean as well. So the idea of, um, and, and you know, the Australians were opposed to French testing at Muroa Atoll in the, in the Pacific. They were very worried about the continued French nuclear testing. So the anti-nuclear thing was to some extent shared, but what was extraordinary, as you, as you say, David, was the way in which the Australians preserved the alliance and positioned it in a way that would ride out these kind of you know, tensions over nuclear. And um, I, th I think, again, mentioning Bob Hawke, as we both have, as a decisive factor, as opposed to someone like David Longy in New Zealand, uh, again, it, it goes some way towards explaining what was important in, in how the relationship was preserved. So, you know, the, the Hawke government does face a bit of a crisis. We see a lot of people on the Australian streets demonstrating in the mid-1980s the 
um, the, the, the protest marches are quite um, significant uh, against nuclear mining and against, uh, at one stage, a, um, a proposed missile test, the MX missile test that um, Hawke had originally agreed to um, uh, sponsor uh, a missile that was to be tested, um, fired across from us, uh, monitored by Australia, but backed away from that plan um, and the Americans enabled him to back away without losing too much face in a way that deflated some of the protests somewhat and enabled the Labor Party to ride out the uh, the protests quite successfully. Thereafter, I guess, um, you know, much of the, the kind of political partisan debate dies down. You'd have to see the 1980s as a, as a period in which, you know, post-Vietnam, post the nuclear protests, it suddenly becomes far more bipartisan and unquestioning, really, the way in which the alliance is regarded. Yeah, it's interesting. In the mid-1980s, farmers too were protesting about US subsidies to agriculture. So, that, And even some country party or, the, or national party, as it became, politicians were urging that the ANZUS Treaty be used as a kind of bargaining chip to get from the Americans a better deal on agricultural trade. But one, one um, thing about the New Zealand-Australian comparison that strikes me is that after the mid-1980s, both parties in New Zealand and the people generally seem content with a, uh, a more independent uh, position in terms of foreign policy, a more neutral position, if you like. But in general, the Australian public have been very supportive of ANZUS. Is that your view as well? Yeah, and I think that's confirmed with the opinion polls too, David. If those who studied the polling over time would, I think, confirm that view. And you're absolutely right in relation to New Zealand too. It proves to be very popular, that more independent stand very quickly, uh, that the longy action and thereafter has remained so. So you're quite right about the divergence that has sort of remained in place in terms of attitudes towards the alliance and the, the nuclear issue in particular. And um, you know, there are various various kind of reasons behind that, um, the, including the relationship between Australia and New Zealand. I think New Zealanders like the idea of thinking of themselves as more independent from Australia and the, and the ways in which Australia behaves in world affairs. That's, that's one factor. But also, of course, New Zealand is, you know, far less proximate to mainland Asia and um, probably doesn't feel the heat of some of the the turmoil that we'd been talking about in terms of the legacies of the 1960s and 70s of rapid change in parts of Asia and felt more able to, you know, take a stronger stand uh, than, than needing. They didn't have the American bases that, that we mentioned that uh, the Australian hosted in the 1960s either. And so this this set of reasons, is it's a bit of a shopping list, I know, but they, they are marking a, a kind of a distinctive path that goes differently from the Australian, as you say, quite strong popularity of the American alliance and, and, and which has proven very difficult to question politically since then. Yeah, now in the night, from the 1990s on, we have um, the Australian government under Bob Hawke initially supporting the American-led coalition in the first Gulf War in the 1990s and we have then in the in the succeeding century we have australia participating in the us-led intervention in afghanistan which was initially 
um, put in operation to, um, to seize Osama bin Laden because he'd been responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And that led to a 20-year intervention, which is now only this year come to an end. And we also see the Howard government in 2003 acting in a coalition of the willing, as it was called, without Security Council um, authority in, a war, in the war in Iraq. What role do you think the treaties played in, in these developments in the 1990s and 2000s? I think it was a source of um, some security, feeling secure on the part of the Australians. It was a source of continuity in times that were, you know, tossing people around all over the place. The shock of, well, in particular, the, the 2001 events, the 9-11 events. Um, and we need to note too, David, of course, that that's the, the one time when the ANZUS Treaty has been formally triggered and um, triggered in a way that, um, you know, the Australians offered support for uh, American action in response, which then led um, to the interventions that you mentioned in Afghanistan and elsewhere. The, um, that source of uh, kind of stability and continuity, I think, has been you know, really grasped by the Australians, both politically and at a more popular level, as something that you want to preserve in a, in a world that seemed to be going crazy at, at, in the start of the 21st century. So in general terms, I think it's confirmed the um, broad kind of based support for ANZUS as a logical means of orienting Australian world affairs. It's perhaps um, uh, until recently, it's probably also strengthened the idea that American leadership in world affairs is something Australians still valued. That suffered some pretty severe jolts under the presidency of Trump recently. But broadly speaking, I think, you know, the Australians have found a sense of reassurance that American leadership in world affairs is much better than alternatives. And by that, I'm talking about a degree of rising anxiety accompanying the rise of China over the last 20 or 30 years. And that, of course, is now, you know, creating very testing questions for the Australians whose economic prosperity has been closely linked to that rise of China, but whose concern about China in world affairs is growing more profound by the day. Yeah, just to, to, to pick up that point, so the last five years particularly with the relationship with between Australia and China has really deteriorated very markedly to the extent that it's hard for Australian ministers to, to, to even get to see or talk to their counterparts. Um, is there a sense in which um, the existence of the ANZUS Treaty has meant that in this circumstance of deteriorating relationship between America and China and between Australia and China, that the treaty makes Australia choose between either our security partner, the US, or our main economic partner, China? Mm. I mean, logically, it, it shouldn't in the sense that, you know, the security treaty um, doesn't have those kind of provisions that suggest you need to make those kind of choices. But the relationship, as opposed to the security treaty, I guess, is the key factor, David, in the sense that, you know, the Australians have 
tried to argue around the relationship with the Americans in terms beyond security. You mentioned earlier the the farmers' concerns of the mid-1980s. If we broaden our discussion to include things like investment opportunities, defence procurement, these are all incredibly important dimensions of the Australian-US relationship over the last 10, 20 years. And so whilst not technically a part of the ANZUS Treaty, it's no doubt that they've been built around, uh, flesh has been put on the bones, to use Spender's language, in ways that make it complicated uh, to, you know, suddenly behave in a way that is um, either more independent or behave in a way that seems to be, you know, making a choice in your terms uh, which suggests uh, a lessening uh, closeness of relationship with the United States. Yeah, so perhaps we could conclude with um, a, an assessment of 70 years on, what are the advantages of the treaty to Australia and what are any potential disadvantages and what's the future beyond 70 years in your view? Yeah, really, really hard. I'd love your thoughts on this too, David. Um, in many ways, I think the, the Trump presidency created what we might call a welcome kind of uh, shock reevaluation moment when Australians were forced to think about what it might they might have to do in in the expectation of a more silent or even absent American partner when the Australians think about their relations with their region and, and with parts of Asia, including China. And that, I think, you know, I'm I'm reasonably upbeat about the value of that shock because it it prompts thinking about the the need for, you know, closer relations with countries like Indonesia than we've managed to achieve thus far. I know that a lot of work went into the so-called quad, the, the broadening of the security conversation, so as to include Japan and India, as well as the United States. That's another response. to to the situation we're talking about. I mean, I think these things are quite valuable and useful would be my view because they're more cognizant of the changed security landscape that we're in and the changed geopolitical landscape. None of that is to say that the ANZUS Treaty, um, you know, disappears overnight and I don't think there's any appetite amongst Australian politicians or public for that to happen. But I do think that, you know, there's a scenario in the future wherein we might see it logically um, hollowed out and superseded by things that become more important. Um, and in, whether it be the quad, whether it be another a series of kind of more multilateral thinking about Australia's relations with its neighbours, um, hard to, I don't think there's, again, much appetite for killing something like ANZUS, but whether it becomes just, you know, more symbolic uh, as the years go on is a question I've got in my mind. Yeah, I think it, it strikes me that the, the degree of public support for ANZUS is still as strong as it ever was, and the degree of support by governments, by, by both parties, by officialdom is very strong, and the Defence Department, for example, sees the enormous advantages of interoperability between Australia and US um, military forces, the intelligence relationship and so on. But if you look at the recent debacle in Afghanistan, um, how good was US and allied intelligence there? In terms of disadvantages, it's interesting, I think, that one 
um, senior foreign affairs official, later Secretary of Department of Defense, Bill Pritchard, he actually said um, that he thought that, that in retrospect, it would have been better if Australia had made its own way in Asia without the ANZUS Treaty. In other words, if it could have made its way in its own terms. Mm. But I think that's very far from the sentiment of most Australians and of uh, our major political parties in 2021. Yeah, no, really interesting. And I certainly agree with your comments about the high value that Australians both at official level and, and probably at some public level too, place on the intelligence sharing, the, the idea that we're tapped into, you know, the five eyes kind of um, sharing of uh, intelligence seems to be one very important part of the alliance that hasn't grown weaker. Um, and while Bill Pritchett's comments are really interesting and perhaps tap into that kind of my welcoming the shock of Trump in some ways, um, I also agree with you that it doesn't seem to be felt at a public level or a political level to rapidly unwind much that's been achieved in terms of the relationship with the Americans. Well, at this point, I think we'll I'll say thank you very much to Professor David Lowe for this very informative and interesting conversation about Australia and the ANZUS Treaty. Uh, thank you very much, David. Pleasure, David. Great to have a chat. Thank you. <laughs>